Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. of pod oh my goodness people what a show we're gonna have today i'm so excited that you joined me for this episode my name is kave hoda hope i'm pronouncing that correctly i am gonna be your host for this fun little humor adjacent medical podcast today god i hope i have the emotional maturity to do this we're talking about sex we're talking about sexual dysfunction and to do that i have two special guests first First, Dr. Justin Dubin, men's healthcare specialist at Memorial in the Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. South Florida? Yep, South Florida. I, I don't know correct. why I say South Florida. Like Florida's Florida to me. I don't know northeast, <laughs> west Florida. For, no, dude. For South Florida. Florida. South, South Florida is very, very different, different than North Florida. Way different. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. Maybe you can explain different to me. planet. <laughs> yes, it really is. Justin, welcome back, buddy. Thanks for having me. Actually, I think this is my first time on the show. You were oh, on my show. Right. That's, That's right. I difference. was at your place last time. Now you're yes, at our place. Yes. Yeah. Yes. My good to be rules, here. motherfucker. You're in my <laughs> world now. Nice. Uh, um wait, wait, no, for real though, because I am I don't know anything about Florida uh, other than Ron DeSantis and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, what is the difference between North Florida and South Florida? It's very interesting. It's actually the further south you go in Florida, the more north you go in terms of like northeast culture so the south florida is traditionally a lot of people from new york new jersey transplants the west coast is midwest transplants and uh also when you're talking about miami is south america but when you're talking about north florida you're talking pretty much like the south it's more bible belt more heavy in culture in that way so uh your traditional you know, Southern person is in that Northern Florida area compared to, you know, the Southern Florida Floridian is almost everyone has a connection to the Northeast or the Midwest to some degree. Oh, that's interesting. Second question. What happened to your voice? 
Yeah. So, uh, terrible timing on my part. I, well, <laughs> I, I went to Halloween horror nights. I go every year, uh, in Orlando for, uh, me and my buddy annual trip. And, you know, we do two parks, 24 hours. I got there at 8am left at midnight. We hit both parks, universal studios and islands of adventure. And then we stayed over to the 10, uh, haunted houses that they have at night incredible experience but i was screaming so much i lost my voice it's it's really fun highly recommend it by buddy do you mean a child that you took to these things or was this another grown ass adult that you took this was a this was a grown ass man uh he is uh my best friend growing up shout out mac gallo he he works for the today show he's a producer on the today show and uh you know he hooks up great dude yeah. Great hair. He has actually yeah. excellent hair. I believe it. I believe it. Um, also joining us. Oh my goodness! I'm so excited to have you. You've definitely been on the show before. Now I, I I'm not getting that incorrect. Dr. Ashley Winter. She is a board certified urologist who is a specialist in sexual health and sexual medicine in the greater LA area. Dr. Winter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. And sorry if I butted in before you introduced me. It's like, what is this random? voice popping in actually uh my listeners have such low expectations for me you you have no idea it's okay it's like my the, the thing the way of thinking of like as he was saying florida right south florida like remember in seinfeld like all the parents and seinfeld lived in florida right and they were like del boca Vista states right they lived in south florida right Correct. and then like, right north florida is Bible Belt adjacent. So, yeah. I mean, I don't want you guys judging me for this, but I didn't watch a lot of Seinfeld. I I understand. That's not good. Listen, I understand. It's a great show. I get it. It was, it was a, for the time, it was amazing. My problem wasn't so much the show. It's kind of like my same problem with Pink Floyd and the Lakers. It's the fans. It's not the, the show itself. It's like the Seinfeld guys that would just do nothing. Their whole sense of humor revolved around quoting Seinfeld episodes. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. The whole thing made me want to distance myself as far from as far as I could. But I get the reference, sure. Yeah, Seinfeld. What about Curb? Same problem. Do you like Curb? Also, cringe humor gets I can't. I don't dig the cringe humor. Maybe I'm a little on the spectrum. I'm not sure, but like... <laughs> Oh God! Humor, ugh, like, ugh, ah, the whole time it's like chewing on tinfoil. I don't, I don't love it. You guys, my husband, my husband's gonna be on a Curb episode this upcoming season. Oh, that's so awesome! He filmed that's it like so two days awesome. before our Did... child was born, and I think my water had broken, but I didn't tell him because I <laughs> didn't want him to be distracted <laughs> when he had to go oh. film. <laughs> wow! Like, Did he get to meet out. RFK's wife? Uh, oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Oh, that must yeah. have been fun. How is she? I think she's, like, super chill. Like, I, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about their relationship. But, yeah, I think in real life she's super chill. So I, I don't I, know. I'll try not to blame her for her husband's. Incredible yeah, I wouldn't blame her. I would blame him. Yeah. Although she does hang out. I mean, she does seem to be fully on board. It's like it's like pictures of like her and him together with like Jordan Peterson, like on you know both sides of him and him and her together, like doing these things, like going to like the the Samoan Islands to like meet with like their president <laughs> and convince him to not do like vaccinations. And so I'm not gonna let her off the hook. 
But you know what? I'm not going to put you on the hook for your husband hanging out with her, which is a whole like multiple levels of separation. So yeah, yeah. No, look, I'm not pro anti-vaxxer. That sucks. And yes. And I don't know, but I wouldn't, I I guess I wouldn't not watch Curb. No, I'm going to watch the shit out of your husband's episode. Thank you. We all are. We all are. We I will, all are. I will, that's the one episode I'm going to watch, Ashley. I want him let him know. That's the one episode of the whole Seinfeld universe, the Seinfeld verse that I will watch. Will be the one that he's on. And I will Love tell it. you, like, for what it's worth, Larry David was de- like he said, Larry David, like you know, when he wasn't filming, he had a mask on, like didn't want to, you know, maybe like elbow bump, but like not shake your hand. Like that guy definitely was cognizant of of infectious diseases so um at least let's let's give larry david yeah you know his due in this right. <laughs> i don't know how Shout we got on larry david. The, 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 the this is the show this is the show the this is what we're talking about this is what we're talking about states in florida no yeah. no okay That's what we're going to talk about today is sexual dysfunction <laughs> sexual issues great segue let me ask you two guys, how much of your practice is taking care of sexual dysfunction? You're both you're you're both in the world of urology, so you are there are other things, cancers and such and all that. Um, but how much of your practice is dealing with sexual dysfunction? Ashley? Uh sure. Well, okay. So my career since training has been in a few different environments. Um for the first five years that I was in attending, I was at a Kaiser system, which, um, you know, for, for those of you in areas that have Kaiser or don't, um, you know, to explain, it's a large managed care organization. Um, and there just everybody was expected to do some amount of general urology. And I'd say, um, you know, what fell under straight up sexual medicine was probably, you know, at least 60% of my practice in, in terms of like, Heroni's disease, penile implants, um, anorgasmia, you know, things like that. But then I'd say there was also this other component that oftentimes falls in like the female space where things that people came into um, thinking that it would into my clinic thinking it was a general urology concern, like recurrent UTIs. I actually had to educate them about like genitourinary syndrome of menopause, right? And teach them about how hormones affected their symptoms that they thought were general urology concerns or urinary concerns and actually had this like intersectionality with hormone health. And so that is something that I was empowered to treat well because of my sexual medicine training. So in some way, I feel like sexual medicine became like in effect ended up being like 80% of what I did. Sexual medicine means a lot of different things, and this is a very long, complicated answer, but I think a lot of people just think sexual medicine is like hormones and erectile dysfunction and penis, and it's a lot more than that, right? It's really, in my mind, the intersectionality of urology, hormonal health, and like quality of life medicine as it relates to pelvic organs, um, if that's a very long answer. I think that's a great, I think it's a great answer and you know for my i, I agree with everything you said i, w- I would say about 50 percent of my practice is sexual health but when you kind of pull back the layers like ashley says um you, you end up having people come in for one thing and you find out that they're mm-hmm. they're like oh well while i'm here i also maybe have this issue and i think just to summarize what 
Ashley was saying is that sexual health is health and it is often a warning sign of or uh, something potentially happening down the pipeline in your health or something that is a side effect of something bad happening in your health. And we'll discuss that very thoroughly in this episode, I'm sure. But, you know, someone comes in and very often I'm sending them for a sleep study. I'm sending them for to a cardiologist. I'm sending them to an endocrinologist. We've I've diagnosed diabetes. I've diagnosed heart disease. I've diagnosed sleep apnea, just to name, you know, spine, spine injuries. I send them for, you know, to a, a spine surgeon. These are all things that, you know, sometimes their penis not working is the first thing that gets them in the door, yeah. but they leave with, with so many other issues that we have to assess, whether it's hormones or these other things. Yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting to me that there are going to be that a pretty, I'm sure, sizable group of patients where that's how you get them to seek medical care. It's that their their sexual dysfunction, and that's what's the final straw that gets them into a doctor's office. That's interesting. Well, you know, usually when we think of urologists, I think most people think of treating male patients, but we're talking about a lot of female patients as well, and a lot of female issues. In, and I did a little bit of looking into this before I had you guys come on, and it looks like sexual problems are reported by about 40% of women worldwide and about 12%, it's like one in every eight women have a sexual problem that is associated with some significant personal uh, distress. So uh, Ashley, let me start with you. What are the most common forms of sexual dysfunction that female patients come to you with? Yeah, great question. And I would say probably the incidence of these conditions is even higher. It's just that 100% with women don't realize that sex shouldn't have to be painful or that sex shouldn't have to lack pleasure or sex shouldn't have to be dry or, you know, so it's that women are so uneducated about sexual function and their bodies that they don't even know to begin to identify that there's a problem. Um, so it's it's reported as massive and i think it's way more massive than that um so yeah and your your basic question was like basically you know about those conditions was that sorry i lost track um what are the most what are the most most common, common most see? common yeah i'd say probably the most common would be sexual pain conditions um so pain with penetration um, you know, nearly introitus pain, that's deep pain, right? That can be from conditions like what are considered vestibulodynia or vulvodynia, which is pain, um, you know, around the external genitalia. And then, you know, deep, deep dyspareunia or deep pain um, is associated more commonly with things like um, endometriosis. Um, these things can also be related to pelvic floor dysfunction, um, bladder pain syndromes, um, so that's a huge basket. And then I'd say the other would be, um, oh gosh, well, they're all super common. <laughs> well, so, actually, let, me, let me ask you a question real quick. So yeah. I, I guess I understand the causes of deep pain. Like if there's big yeah. fibroids, if there is something happening that's causing an impingement there, I could see pain. But what's call, causing that more superficial vulvar pain that you'd mentioned? What, what is that? I love you asking this. This is such a great question. I'm, so, I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty great. You are so great. Pretty great. Pretty great. I know. 
And, and right. And it's so funny because I think people typically think of pain in women when they have sex, like some huge penis, like pounding it really hard and that hurts or something. Right. But it's actually, actually extremely common where the pain is superficial, like right at the opening, so meaning something that even prevents penetration in the first place, or, you know, it gets in, but it doesn't have to be related to like how intense the sex is or how big the penetrative object is, right? Like not at all. So um, so that like vulvar pain, vulvodynia or vestibulodynia, the most common, com and I'll try not to be too long with this, but the most common reason for that um, is usually related to hormones. So it's really prevalent in women in peri and post-menopause due to lack of estrogen and testosterone mm. um, because the tissue around the opening of the, of the introitus, like right, right at the opening of the vagina is this thing called the vulvar vestibule. And it's this piece of tissue that like nobody really understands that it's a, like its own organ. Um, it's where a lot of the lubrication associated with sex comes from. And a lot of the, the fluid secreted by it is like the equivalent of pre-cum in men. Um, so it's that same quality of like stuff <laughs> that makes you wet. Um, like men get wet, it's pretty cum, right? Um, and that organ is very hormone sensitive. And if there's low hormones then it can become raw, irritated, like it would be like, you know, trying to rub something across a, a scrape, right? Like you scraped your knee and now someone's going to rub something on it. Like that would suck. Right. So if your hormones are low, you can develop this situation at that ring of tissue that feels really horrible. Now it can be from menopause, perimenopause. It can also be in younger women, uh, oftentimes related to birth control because birth control, uh, actually suppresses, um, estradiol, uh, and testosterone. Right. So you think of taking like hormonal contraceptives and you think you're actually getting more hormones and it is a hormone, but it suppresses your natural production. And so you can actually get a pain syndrome there. Now, not everybody who takes combined oral contraceptive pills get this pain syndrome, but many do. And it's really tough because a lot of young women are put on the pill before they become sexually active so that they don't get pregnant right like oh hey you've gone through puberty why don't you consider going on the pill have you had sex yet no why don't you start this right and then they think it's normal that it hurts when they have sex and they didn't know that there was any other way it could be and again i am somebody who's super super pro contraception but you also there's also a great societal misunderstanding on the sexual side effects of, of birth control. And like, we need better informed consent around that stuff. So yeah. Is it just oral birth control? This is a great question. So oral combined contraceptive pills raise sex hormone binding globulin, blah, sex hormone binding globulin. SHBG. Yes. For everybody listening, that's like a protein that floats around in your blood. Okay. And, and the reason is because it's a, it's a, it's a hormone and it's taken by mouth. So it's processed by your liver. And like, Justin will know this, like if somebody takes oral testosterone in the traditional formulations that affects your liver and your sex hormone binding globulin goes up. So it's not great to take any sort of hormone by mouth. And unfortunately the most common hormone that people take by mouth, not any type of hormone, but certain, certain steroid hormones, um, and the most common type of steroid hormone that people take by mouth is the combined oral contraceptive pill, right? So 
So that raises this SHBG and it lowers the bioavailable testosterone in 100% of people who take it, right? And we know that testosterone is important in women and it's definitely important in their genitals and it can, the lack of it can lead to general pain. It can also lead to lack of libido. So we actually are giving what millions, if not hundreds of millions of, of people worldwide combined oral contraceptives pills that a hundred percent of the time lower bioavailable testosterone in women and can lead to sexual pain conditions and can lead to yeah. uh, low libido. So mm -hmm. um, if that's like, if I'm, not explaining that well, let me know, but it's a huge hundred percent sense. And this is, sense. Right, well, and me, this is, oh yeah, let me just explain. one last thing. This is yeah. why things like IUDs are amazing because IUDs can, like even though progesterone-based IUDs are hormonal contraceptive and can suppress um, ovulation, right? They don't have the same effect on the sex hormone binding globulin. So there's less sexual side effects in terms of libido and pain. So, yeah. So just real quick, though, getting back to, to something you had mentioned, I mean, we think of birth control, and I think most of the general public, um, you know, gets the concept of there being hormones in it. But you also mentioned combined hormones, and you, can, you mentioned steroid as well. What, where is the steroid aspect of this? And can you explain that to our listeners, um, how that plays a part in this? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the combined oral contraceptive pill is what I'm talking about. And generally that is defined by having a synthetic estrogen. So the most common thing is something called ethyl estradiol. Um, and so again, you're taking that and it's quite potent, but it, usually it's in these ultra low doses. So it's potent enough to suppress your ovulation, but then it will decrease the endogenous level of other estrogens in your body. And that's why it can lead to things like, um, at, like genital atrophy and stuff, right? And then also it will contain um, a progestin. So something in the family of some like synthetic hormones that are related to progesterone. Now there's a problem because um, not only can these drugs affect testosterone levels through this SHBG I mentioned earlier, but some of these progestins have a direct anti-androgen or anti-testosterone effect. So um, a really common one is despirinone. Despirinone. So that is like a double whammy and the sexual side effects of that one are really bad. And it's really shitty because that one is given so often for these extra benefits of like clear skin, right? And why does it clear up your skin? Because it fucks up your testosterone. So it gets rid of all your zits because a lot of zits are mediated through androgen levels, right? Like that's why when you go through puberty, you get all these zits is because your testosterone mm -hmm. levels bike and you get zits. <laughs> and so we're just saying to women, Hey, you'll have clear skin and be pretty because we're like, you're not chemically castrating them, but you're like, you're messing with really important hormones, right? Like, why wouldn't you say if your problem is acne, try something topical first, right? Like what, if your problem is acne, why wouldn't you do something less invasive first? Right. Like, but, but for teenage women, we just say, Oh, here, ablate your, your androgens 
so you can look nice, right? You might spend the next 20 years of your life having painful sex and no sex drive and you'll never understand why and nobody will ever explain it to you. Sorry, I get like really, yes. <laughs> really passionate about this topic and you guys think, you know, oh, is this just a women's issue? Like just think how many times in your dating life you may have met someone or had this concordance in your sex drive? Like, was that person on the oral contraceptive pill? Like, how much did they not even know, like, their innate desire to have sex or what it would be like to have pain-free sex? Like, the ramifications of all this are, like, huge. And I, I, again, it's not the case with everybody. Some people do great with these medications, but, like, I think there should be a giant warning <laughs> label on all of them and i think that it should be part of the informed consent conversation every single time and that makes a lot of sense i'm glad you brought that up just to just to be clear kind of also what i was getting at is i think a lot of listeners would probably be confused when they hear steroids because they yes. think steroids they think like either prednisone like a steroid for a chronic asthma sort of inflammatory issue or like anabolic steroids and we're not really talking about that kind of steroid um, so just, just want to make that part, um, clear there. No, it was, um, it was a great point of clarification. And so, you know, this is, we're talking about hormones in regards to women's healthcare, but, um, Justin, what, what about uh, the most commonly used hormones for, for men's health? What do you, are you getting a lot of testosterone questions these days? I know a lot of men who are really excited about taking testosterone, a lot of people who feel really strongly that it's gotten a bad rap out in the public um, and feel that it's healthy and they try to push it. And can you, how are you answering these questions? What are the questions you're getting and how are you answering them? It's so now more than ever is really everyone's talking about testosterone. You have a million podcasts out there talking about optimization. They're using words like optimization and all these drugs and it's, it's, it's become concerning enough so that actually, you know, in December we published in, in JAMA internal medicine, a secret shopper where I actually was a secret shopper uh, for uh direct to consumer online uh, testosterone clinics. We, what we did is we found seven clinic or companies on a national level that uh, provided care to all 50 States. And what we did was I pretended to just be me. I was at the time a young 34 year old man. And uh, I went with a script uh, saying I had signs and symptoms of low testosterone. I said I erectile dysfunction. Yeah, low T, erectile dysfunction, low energy, issues gaining muscle mass, weight gain. Um, but the important thing I did mention was that I was I was married and that I wanted to have future children. And for, for our listeners who aren't aware, one of the biggest side effects of taking testosterone in any capacity is that it causes infertility about um, 65% of men who have sperm uh, develop what we call azoospermia, zero sperm in their ejaculate only in, within about four months of using it. Now that's obviously concerning. And as more and more men are trying to get on these things, the education in terms of the risks and benefits um, have to be known. So when I went into this, I had clearly and distinctly said that I want to have future children with my partner. And six of the seven, and I also got blood work. I got legitimate blood work. My testosterone levels were normal. Uh, according to the AUA guidelines, threshold of 300 total testosterone is considered low. Uh, mine was around 650, no big deal. But uh, 
Also, humble, so humble brag. I, despite check, out, check out Justin yeah, yeah. The, the, bragging despite, about his testosterone. <laughs> Take that, cucks. Hey, well, yeah, the, the funny yeah. thing is, if it was bad, it would have been the study wouldn't have worked. So yeah, I got right. very yeah. lucky that yeah, right. right. <laughs> so I had I great no testosterone doubt. levels, yeah, and do. I want, <laughs> and I wanted to get testosterone. Six of the seven companies offered me testosterone, even though I wanted to have fertility and having normal testosterone levels. What does this mean? It means that, you know, a lot of people are being put on T and I also do infertility care. And I cannot tell you how many young men I am seeing these days who are on testosterone, who were not told that it caused fertility. And we have to manage these people appropriately by taking them off of testosterone sometimes and putting them on other medications like Clomid or HCG, um, which can, uh, you know, innately build your, your fertility and your own testosterone levels up naturally. But We've come to a point where some of these guys now, even with their partners in here, they're saying they feel so good on the testosterone that they don't even want to come off. So I have to put them on a combination of things. And, you know, it, it it's a very interesting world we're currently living in. And, you know, one of the arguments always becomes, well, why can't we just put everyone on T? Is, is there a problem? Because, you know, we have a new study came out, a really big uh, study came out in New England Journal of Medicine about, I don't know what, two months ago, because there was always a concern of risk of testosterone usage and stroke, heart attack, cardiovascular yeah. risk. That's that they did a great randomized uh, trial that showed it did not increase the risk. And we already know having low testosterone puts you at risk for heart attack, stroke, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, all these other comorbidities. So putting you on T is actually very helpful for a lot of men. But if you don't need it, just like anything, more does not necessarily mean better. There's ample studies showing that men who've been treated at a supra therapeutic, and remember this New England study showed that they were at therapeutic levels, supra therapeutic levels. Yeah, you can get a heart attack, you can get a stroke, you can have all these health issues. And you look at all these studies of bodybuilders where they're going through it and they all they all have comorbidities. And, you know, I remember I was sitting with Dr. Rajat Ramasamy, who's a mentor of mine. So I'm giving him the shout out because he said this, we were at a, a meeting and we were having a conversation and one urologist says, why don't we just give everyone testosterone? It makes them feel better. They're doing better. He's like, well, heroin feels good for you, but more doesn't necessarily mean it's always better for your health. And I thought, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment also for testosterone. You know, you're putting people on something for life most of the time, if they don't need to be and we're promising them solutions for maybe some other underlying issue right signs and symptoms of low testosterone are very very general except for usually like a low libido or something like that mm -hmm. but in general they can be so many other things they can be super tentorial they could be depression anxiety and stuff like that so you know People going online and seeing things like, oh, maybe I just have low testosterone and going to one of these clinics and saying, hey, yeah, you don't have to low testosterone technically, but we want to make you feel better. Yeah. Um, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I would amazing. say another important to piggyback on that comment. We so intensely conflate low T with all these virile sexual traits that people mm -hmm. end up getting ineffective treatments. And so <clears throat> what do I mean by that? So, and, and I would also say another thing, right? Like about the secret shopper that's important to know is, you know, these direct to consumer space 
has definitely shown a light on the way testosterone is being misused, but there have been local quote unquote tea clinics for many years that have been doing the same thing. So this isn't something that's happened mm -hmm. with like direct consumer telehealth in the last few years. Like that is clearly a problem based on Justin's study with, you know, certain DTC telehealth providers, but it's been a problem for decades, honestly. Um, but anyway, to, to my original point. So in my last job, right, I would like when I was working at this Kaiser, I would have men come in all the time and they had gone to a lo this local tea clinic, basically where people get go to say, I have erectile dysfunction and get put on tea, whether or not their tea was normal, right? And 99% of the time, it wouldn't fix the problem, right? And the reason is because if like, yes, if you have a very healthy cardiovascular system and you just happen to have extremely low testosterone, let's say from a pituitary tumor, then correcting your testosterone is going to give your erections back, you, your erections back, right? But if you have a penis that is unhealthy for some other reason, like, and you have cardiovascular disease and your erections are not working well and your tea happens to be normal, giving you more tea is not going to fix your erections. And we have so conflated this, these virile characteristics with having high tea that men come in and they're like, I was put on more tea and more tea and more tea and more tea. And my erections never came back and they had not come to a urologist. And I was like, Hey, we have to start from square one. This isn't a testosterone problem because your tea is normal and it's, you're not getting hard. Right. And we have to think about other strategies. So that's another danger of, you know, misunderstanding the power of testosterone. I, I Absolutely. Think I think it's an amazing topic. I think it's really interesting that one company at least said, no, your tea is normal. Your testosterone levels are normal and didn't give it to you. I'm almost shocked that there was one of seven companies that did that. Um, how, how, how was that when they told you, were you kind of surprised that they did that? What was their, what did they say to you? They said, no, you're good. You don't need this. Well, they said you're not eligible for this, but you know, they, that didn't mean they didn't offer me things. <laughs> they, they, there's, you know, other things you can be offered. They just didn't offer me testosterone. I didn't meet criteria. Now there's a lot of other medications. I did mention HCG, Clomid. I, I don't believe I was offered those to, by that company. Um, I have to, you know, but, go back to that. But they wanted you as a client for something else. I, Correct. Yeah. Right. Now, listen, I'm coming to them with an issue, some like just like anyone else. So, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I am not against direct-to-consumer either. I am I'm very yeah, pro-telemedicine. Yeah. I think we all are. I mean, I'm very pro-telehealth. I'm very pro-direct-to-consumer. But I think we have to understand that, you know, there are, you know, risks and benefits of these things. And, and you know, testosterone is a, con a class three controlled substance and it, it is for a reason, although some people may argue against that at this point. I, now, I think it shouldn't be a class. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it should uh, yes. be a I, I Nobody do ends have, up in the gutter, like, I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> I, I have some reservations about direct health advertisement and I have some reservations about telehealth. But speaking of which, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Here are some commercials from Better Health or whatever. Don't listen to any of them. I don't approve these <laughs> advertisements. So whatever you hear in the following advertisements, you can soundly ignore. We'll be right back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. All right, welcome back. I hope you really enjoyed all those advertisements about dick pills and mattresses and mm. whatever other garbage they put in there. Don't buy it. Anyways, let's talk about anorgasmia i want to talk about anorgasmia i think it's an interesting topic i want to talk about from both the female and the male perspective let's start first uh with with you ashley can you tell us a little bit about how common it is in women <laughs> well <laughs> there's the existence of women not having orgasms because they or their partners are not educated about how to achieve their orgasms. And then there's true physiologic anorgasmia. And those are two very different things. And I think the first is extremely common and the second is not actually super common. <laughs> wait, wait, how, do you, how do you bring that out in a patient interview? When you're talking to a patient, how do you get to the point where you're like, question. I'm sorry, but the problem probably is your lover sucks. Like we're, well, or they're not doing it. How, <laughs> how does that, how do you get to that point in a conversation with a patient? Well, I'll tell you for one thing, and I'm sure Justin can say this too. When you do sexual medicine frequently and for many years, you just become so comfortable at talking about this stuff. Like, you know, for 100%. the regular people, people, like you're not hanging out with your friends at the barbecue being like, well, you know, when you have sex, like where does your husband put his finger? You know, like you're usually saying that, but like at work, I'm talking about that all the time, right? So, um, yep. So, like, I remember, you know, often it would come up, um, particularly, I think, in certain generations of females, um, you know, let's say the boomer generation and up in my patients, like, who have just had certain fewer exposures in terms of their health expectations and their health um, literacy. And, you know, it turning out like, hey, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever had an orgasm. And then I'd be like, well, tell me a little bit, you know, about how you get stimulated during sex. And then I'll, you know, describe POV and like no manual external genital sim stimulation. Right. And so it's not super hard to get at, um, you know, and I'll be like, Hey, have you ever touched, you know, do you masturbate? Like, how do you masturbate? Have you ever touched your clitoris? Do you know where your clitoris is? And sometimes they have no Am I allowed to curse? Because they have no fucking idea. And like, and I sit there with somebody who's, you know, sometimes twice my age and we use a hand mirror and I show them where their clitoris is. And I give them, I say, go home and try stimulating this because this is the equivalent of the penis. And like, I can promise you, you know, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm using a lot of like heteronormative 
discussion points here, but like if you've had a male partner, they've been looking at the equivalent of this organ every single day of their entire lives. Like mm-hmm. go and look at it. Like it, it mm-hmm. it's just as important <laughs> for sexual pleasure. Like look at your clitoris. Um, so so more yeah, of a, more of a generational thing. You feel? I'd say it's far more common that I have people that have been in like sexually active for decades i mean sexually active for long periods of time and have never had an orgasm who are older women yeah it's crazy and i think i think just to highlight that you know there is this thing called the orgasm gap and it's something that's very very important to understand when we're talking about anorgasmia especially in in heteronormative relationships heterosexual relationships where you know only about 20 to 30 percent of women really achieve orgasm through penetrative intercourse and you know there was a couple studies showing that you know while 91 percent of men say that they usually are always experiencing orgasm with partner and sex only about 39 percent that might even be low i i mean or high uh during penetrate during you know the partner sex so you know this idea when we're talking about orgasm and 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 uh is a male focused one for you know and and that's kind of you know sex ends after the man orgasms is unfortunately how a lot of societal thoughts are instead of like hey i'm not like let's do this together you know uh uh you know maybe how do you get it off asking your partner you know is it penetrative is there other things going on and how we can achieve this together so unfortunately for i think for a lot of women and i, I speak with men mostly i don't really deal with the female side but i do often ask about this stuff as well because it is important to achieve you know a partner's goal of you know satisfying each other and also understanding how to stimulate uh you know a a, a woman <laughs> it ties into other sexual conditions, right? Like absolutely. You may have pain with sex, but if you stimulate your partner appropriately, maybe she won't have painful sex because she's appropriately lubricated, mm-hmm. right? Like that. So it can tie into pain conditions, but mm-hmm. um, you know, to your original question about anorgasmia. So really, you know, when you think of a real physical anorgasmia, right? there's a few main categories. So the, the most common would be like medication induced, right? People who, for example, like SSRIs, particularly high doses of SSRIs. So for people who don't know an SSRI is a, like a type of antidepressant. Um, and those in both men and women can notoriously make it more difficult to climax. Um, so that can be for some people, either anorgasmia or delayed orgasm. Um, you know, there can be like neurologic basis, um, Again, that's not as common, but definitely like if you have really advanced diabetes, you can have peripheral nerve damage that can cause problems achieving orgasm again in both men and women. Um, and this is like, right, di- uncontrolled diabetes is probably the number one most com, like one of the number one most common causes of sexual dysfunction in all genders, erectile dysfunction, mm-hmm. arousal mm-hmm. disorder, orgasm dysfunction because it makes your nerves stop working <laughs> like mm-hmm. right it's crazy so, so it doesn't have to be that you just have a spinal cord injury for you to have sex like neurologic sexual dysfunction like it can be peripheral nervous like <laughs> neurologic conditions um you know peripheral neurologic damage um and then there's like what we call end organ or like um like end organ problems, right? So that would be like 
an actual problem with the clitoris that is causing somebody to have a difficulty orgasm. So the classic example would be like a phimosis, right? And so a phimosis is when the foreskin is fused over the the glands or the tip of the organ, right? And typically you think about this with a penis, you can have phimosis of the penis, that's when the foreskin doesn't retract, right? And you can't see the glands, but this can also happen with a clitoral hood. And I have, and it is actually like quite common. And I have seen people come in and say they have pain with arousal or they can't have an orgasm. And you look and their clitoris, the, like the hood of the clitoris and the labia is completely fused and you can't even see the tip of the clitoris. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very treatable problem. Uh, <laughs> and it's not infrequent. And like, so again, it's so important to examine these things and break them down into different conditions because I think classically woman says, Oh, I can't, can't orgasm. And you're like, drink a glass of wine or experiment. And it's like, it might be, <laughs> so fucked up. it might be a physical thing that can be fixed and have nothing to do with wine or watching sexy movies, <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, so it sounds like the treatments are really varied based on what the problem is. And it can be anything from like using the appropriate lubrication to like a surgical option if there's uh something that needs like a, the clitoral hood needs to be released for example and what you do and when you're talking to these patients at what point are you uh, are do you feel like that you've you've done everything you can and there isn't anything left to do is that is that ever happened that you've tried everything physiologically there's no obvious problem and there's no surgical issue. The lubrication issue doesn't seem to be a problem. At that point, do you have to assume it's uh, it's a psychological thing? At, at what point is it out of your hands? And do you say, I want you to see a therapist or something? Or do you even at that point say, look, not everyone has orgasms and that's okay. What do you, what do, you do in those situations? Interesting question. Exhausted everything. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very less common, like, and unique condition, right? Like usually if somebody's has a regular hormone levels, let's say they're not on an SSRI, they're not on a combined oral contraceptive pill, as we discussed previously, they have a visible glands clitoris on exam. Um, they are, you know, stimulating the clitoris with either, you know, a vibrator or a finger. Like usually when you meet these criteria, there will be an orgasm except exceedingly, exceedingly rare to not be able to achieve it under all those criteria, right? Which is an amazing thing because usually checking those boxes isn't too hard. Um, now, certainly there are times when people still don't orgasm um, despite all of those things. And, and it's been like that lifelong. That's typically something we call like primary anorgasmia. And again, pretty rare. Um, you know, in those instances, Sometimes you'll try certain medications, not because you think there's a psychological thing, but because there's like a neurochemical thing, right? So sometimes like you think, right, you think of kind of the pro, the pro orgasm um, neurotransmitter as being dopamine, right? Dopamine is like associated with lots of pleasurable sensations. Um, and so like some people just 
due to their physiolo like physiology or their genes like have right i mean why are some people more predisposed to being depressed right some sort right. of neuro like severe severe depression regardless of life circumstances right like some of that's just a neurochemical thing right um so for those people you can try different things that target dopamine there's no specific medications that are fda approved for this um and other neurochemicals related to this. So like, for example, the medication flibanserin, which is FDA approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder or low sex drive, um, and technically only FDA approved for that in premenopausal women. It doesn't work on sex hormones. It works in the brain. It's this like mixed serotonin agonist antagonist that basically shifts the brain into this like pro-dopamine space. I won't bore you on like, the nitty gritty of that but in people of any gender who have difficulty not only with desire but even with orgasm i have seen benefit um so that is certainly something you can try it's also good for people who have anorgasmia from medications like antidepressants mm -hmm. um so you can try that <clears throat> again there's not large studies on this unfortunately because I think the funding isn't there and because the metrics are not excellent. So getting FDA approval for like orgasm based metrics is just hard to do, right? Sure, like for right. cancer therapeutics, it's like how many people died in this six month period, right? right? Like, so, so there's that. And then um, the really kind of more bootstrap, like uh, kind of low tech option is um, other dopamine agonists. Like you can, I have prescribed Parkinson's meds to these people. Oh, um, so things Ooh. like, yeah. So think medications like cabergoline, they're very cheap and they are yeah, dopamine agonists, right? So because Parkinson's disease is a, is a, is a, is a dopamine, uh, uh, a, like low levels of dopamine in certain parts of the brain. Right. And, so, <laughs> and those medications increase dopamine in the brains and they're cheap and easy to prescribe. Um, and the main downside with them is like, again, there's not much efficacy data. They work for some people, they don't work for others um, and they can increase compulsive behaviors. Um, mm. So if you have like a gambling problem or um, like a substance use disorder, they can be problematic and cause you to like spiral down those paths. Very, um, I didn't know that. That's yeah, and it's, it's a fascinating thing because that's associated with that part of your brain that craves, right? So you can yeah. like start craving sex and you can potentially orgasm but then you might end up in the casino <laughs> so um and and you'll find like you can ask people who are you know have parkinson's and are high doses of these medications pretend sometimes um their reward centers are affected by this right like you have i you may have known somebody who has parkinson's who's actually has like a raging sex drive um <laughs> it's it's fascinating stuff uh yeah that is really interesting. Um, let me ask you, Justin, uh, how common is anorgasmia in men? Is that something that you see? And I'm not talking about erectile dysfunction, like in terms of difficulty getting an erection. Do you ever see patients where that's not the issue? They can get an erection, but they just can't bring themselves to orgasm. Does that happen? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Yes. Yes, it is. It's, it's something that we see. And I think you have to kind of understand the physiology to get there because I, I, when we're talking about men specifically, you have to understand that you can orgasm 
And uh, orgasm and ejaculation are two different things. You can not ejaculate an orgasm. You can orgasm without ejaculating. Um, so, so you have to kind of have an understanding where, you know, often I see guys with erectile dysfunction and I ask if I still ask if they're able to achieve orgasm. And some of them are, have a very soft penis and they say nothing comes out, but I achieve orgasm and I'm very, very happy with my sex life. I don't really care. Some people can't get an, can't get an erection and then they, and they can't orgasm and they're not happy. Some people get a great erection and they just never achieve orgasm. Uh, usually those are the guys who can't don't orgasm and ejaculate together. So, you know, just kind of, understanding that that pathway so you know your parasympathetics kind of give you your erection and and your sympathetics are usually the the point and shoot is what we like to call it the sympathetics have a role with your ejaculation and and you know in order to ejaculate you have the emission where your your semen is pushed out into the urethra by the contraction of the prostate seminal vesicles vas deferens and then you know you have the bladder neck contraction right and this part's very important when you're talking about ejaculation and you often see people with diabetes, prostate surgeries, you know, that bladder neck is compromised. So you can orgasm and nothing comes out. And mm. some of these guys tell me, oh, I didn't, I didn't orgasm. And I'm like, well, do you feel the sensation? Yes, but nothing came out. And mm. so, you know, sometimes you have to educate your patient on, on what they're actually going through to, because, you know, sometimes this is not very common knowledge stuff, right? Um, and question, then the last wait, quarter wait. is the expulsion. But yeah. All right. Question for you. I'd love to see if you've had this experience as well. I have noted many, like a number of patients actually say to me after a prostate cancer surgery, uh, they have become multi-orgasmic and that their orgasms are more powerful than before. And obviously they don't ejaculate anymore because they don't have a prostate. Uh, but it's like rewired things in their pelvis and it's fascinating. And like, most of the men I know of that are multi-orgasmic actually don't have a prostate anymore. <laughs> I have not had that, but that's very, very interesting. And yeah. just to kind of pick up on that, you can, you know, you can have something called climacteria in these guys who have had their prostates removed where instead of having ejaculate, which they don't have anymore because their prostate seminal vesicles removed, actually a little bit of urine comes out. And a lot of people don't like that. Um, and that's something that you sometimes have to address as well. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about... Wait, how do you address that? How would you address... That seems like a very tricky sometimes, honestly, sometimes to deal with. I, you, oftentimes, I tell them to empty their bladder prior to engaging in sexual activity is really the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I just provide them with reassurance. I'm like, oh, a little piece. Yeah, not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Ashley, what, what do you... How do you usually recommend... How do you guide these people? Yeah, I mean, usually it's... um yeah, empty your bladder and, you know, that it's normal. And, you know, for the most part, you know, it's the person caring more than their partner caring. Um, Correct. Correct. And, you know, just doing those education points, if it's something that they're outrageously bothered by and they're more than a year after surgery and they've already gone to pelvic floor physical therapy and kind of optimized their healing um, and all that good stuff, then, you know, you can do like, you could discuss like, for example, um, a sling, uh, a male sling, a urethral sling, um, but typically those are better for um, incontinence and they're really yeah. not gonna optimize any sort of climacteria. Um, the final thing that I didn't mention is just like using a cock ring, right? So cock yeah. rings can, you know, they'll put pressure on the urethra 
Um, so, you know, you can use those. And some, some men do have really good um, resolution of, of climacteria just with a cock ring. So that's another and thing you can do. Any risk of using the cock ring while we're speaking about it for people who don't have those underlying issues, like for a typical patient, like, uh, is there anything to be concerned I, about? I think that? the, I think when you're, I think we're all, Ashley and I will agree, cock rings, constriction bands, similar, similar names, whatever you want. I think we're all for them. Very good products, but you have to be careful on the kind of product you use. You have to understand how familiar you are with these products. You know, um, we've all, as urologists during residency, I've sought off a few cock rings. In no metal day. cock rings. No metal, metal cock rings are bad. You want elastic, <laughs> elastic cock or elastic. Yeah. Um, something that you can, you know, stretch that has some give so that God forbid, you know, it gets stuck you know, and, you know, you're kind of creating, uh, you know, an, an issue where it's swollen and you can't get it off. Um, we can remove it or you can remove it either with a knife or scissors or something like that. Now, the like key it shouldn't is involve not... the fire department to get off of you. Correct. Just, correct. Just don't, don't get yeah, one of those. <laughs> And it, it might look cool or whatever, but just, just don't do it. And yeah. I think the key is timing. Like you don't, I always tell them, you don't want to keep it on longer than 20 or 30 minutes. You know, most sexual interactions are, aren't lasting that long anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's not keeping it on long, understanding what kind of product you're having, you're using and then, you know, understanding your body as well. You know, it, it's in general though, they, they're very, very safe and very effective and very helpful. And I, I often get, tell guys, you know, you can really optimize if, the, you know, the Viagra, the Cialis isn't taking you where, where you want to be, even with penile implants, with, with you know, it can help get your glands a little bit more full. Um, with Trimix, the injections in your penis, you can, it's always a, a nice add-on if you really, if you really want to uh, make it really strong. And then I will interject after this, um, I am, as a disclosure, on the scientific advisory board of a product called FirmTech, uh, which makes both a smart cock ring, so it's like a Fitbit cock ring, uh, but mm -hmm. also- okay. I have one form. right over here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we also make one that's not a smart version, but it's actually made of a type of elastomer, and it has a type of design where it's actually safe to wear overnight if you want to monitor your nocturnal tumescence. Um, so the number and strength of your nighttime erections can be a, um, indicator of your overall cardiovascular health. So some people can wear it for that and track their nighttime erections. So that one, the first, wow. wow, you guys is safe cool to wear overnight. It has, it's a great design. I, it's I, a great design. I'm not associated, <laughs> I'm not associated in any way. It's a great design. And you can wow. wear that one overnight. It's a great, if you're somebody who likes to fall asleep immediately after your orgasm, I know people like that, including, you know, my husband, yeah. then it's <laughs> It's <laughs> my hand. Don't we all? Though it's uh, tiring. It's so tiring. I know. I'm I know. I'm in it's old. Hard. I, mean, I want to go to bed <laughs> afterwards. Um, speaking of toys, do you ever recommend the use of vibrators for anorgasmia? Um, and is there ever a problem with a woman who can only use a vibrator? Gets to a point where they only use a vibrator. And by the way, if that's that's fine, we certainly don't need men <laughs> or right. other partners or women for that matter. But is, is there ever a time when you tell someone to maybe ease off the, the use of a vibrator? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, again, it's it's always to the, like, if somebody's having personal distress due to the extent that they're using a vibrator, then, you know, of course, I'm going to counsel them to reduce it. Is there an exact number? 
probably not. Like there's not an exact cutoff. I mean, if somebody's like, hey, I'm, you know, using a vibrator four hours a day and I feel isolated from my friends and I don't date and I'm scared to have intimacy because of my vibrator use, then like, yeah, that's a problem, right? Um, if somebody's using it every single day and they're having a few orgasms and they feel great, like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> so so it's really, I think, related to that personal distress and the impact on interpersonal relationships, right? And if somebody, um, I mean, right, if somebody is interested in having partner sexual activity, and not everybody is interested in that, but if you are interested in personal, you know, partnered sexual activity, um, then I think, you know, it is important to say, how are ways that we can effectively use, you know, work the vibrator into partnered sexual activity mm -hmm. so that that can enhance that. Right. And it doesn't mean you can't also go off and masturbate. Like masturbation is normal, even if you have partner of sexual. Hell yeah. But it's important to. to yeah. That. Yeah. And listen, listen, I'm going to just piggyback off of her for a second because we think sex toys, we think women, I, for especially anorgasmia, delayed orgasm, I recommend oftentimes guys get sex toys themselves. And, you know, um, that vibrator. Of like all of them, <laughs> keep like, just for. Sure. Shout out, shout out Hot Octopus. I, I recommend Hot Octopus products all the time. Uh, they have different products. You know, one looks like a taco you put your penis in and then it vibrates at the tip. And, you know, women are stimulated by, by vibration. But guess what, guys? The penis also has that vibratory stimulation. And I think for a lot of guys, it can really, you know, help them get over the edge of that, that uh, you know, that delayed orgasm. And, uh, you know, you can get so aroused by that thing. You don't even have to be hard. Once again, you don't have to be hard to orgasm or even ejaculate. So, you know, I, I often use these tools for my patients as well. And, and in terms of like, I always say, Hey, listen, you, you've got a million different ways where you're trying to come, whether it's Cialis, Viagra, why not help your partner come if they need to by bringing that toy in too? So it's, it's all like synergy, right? It's two plus two equals five. There's nothing to be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, guys, don't be embarrassed that you can't make your, your wife come or your partner come during sex uh, with just penetrative sex. Guess what? Most people can't. So bring in the stuff that they can penetrate or can orgasm because that rocks, that rules. That's when you're going to get off and you're going to have a good time with your partner. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the only area of human activity where I feel like we're so stigmatized to use an assistive device, right? Like yeah. I am wearing glasses right now and I don't feel like less of a person and go home and cry because I wear glasses. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> awesome. I'm wearing glasses. I'm not going to walk into a wall and it's legal for me to drive a car when I wear these glasses. That's amazing, right? So like, <laughs> why not use an assistive device to have amazing sex? That's awesome. <laughs> it's I, no I, different. I agree. And actually, I think maybe we talked about this on the prior episode you're on, but uh, I kind of blame a lot of this on how we're taught about sex via both pornography and run-of-the-mill movies that have sex. Because I can't think of a single sex scene in a non-pornographic movie where they use a toy of some sort to help them. It's always like the guy and the girl having sex and orgasming at the same exact time. And it's just, there's no digital use. No, he's not, you know, diddling her while he's doing it. It's just like the covers in the perfect way. And then three thrusts and it happens, you know, like, I think, th I think it would be nice to see that if anyone knows of one, I want to hear about it. Send it to me. I would love, I mean, don't send me the movie, but like, tell me, because I don't think it's ever happened. And I challenge Hollywood to make that happen. Michael Weber, if you're listening, 
screenwriter of 500 Days of Summer, prior guest. Make this happen. Oh, okay? I, that's what top five be, movie for me. I love that movie. Be the guy. Yeah. I would um, say 40 year old virgin, the final scene where they, he first has sex is one of those scenes where it was like, she's like, Oh, you came. He's like, yeah. And then they do it again. And then it was better the second time, but that's the only one I could think of right off the top of my head. No, I mean, my husband, like my, my husband's a comic and he like made some, he has some joke about that. Like you don't have any sex scenes where the guy is just like sitting there with his like hand, like, like you know, diddling a clutter. Ass, like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, but it should, because that's like, if a right. partner enjoys that, that's a normal thing to do. Correct. Like, right, yeah. um, and also the sex, the, the movie sex position is always like the two people sitting up facing each other in bed, which is like, that is not most sex. Like that is yeah. like the worst sex position. Like, what is that? Like, there's it's no a, leverage that's that the way. the only sex position I've been doing because of the movies that you can have sex <laughs> in other ways. <laughs> Like they don't even have missionary anymore. It's always just two people sitting, looking at each other in bed. And I'm like, if you're going to do this sitting, looking at each other, do it on a couch or something. But no people are sitting, looking at each other in bed. That's not. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not it's very realistic. Always the way they do it. It makes me so mad. <laughs> the worst. Oh, all right. Oh. Uh, okay. We are coming very close to the amount of time uh, I have allotted for this. And I need to, I need to let you guys go soon. And. There are a lot of listener questions. I don't think we'll be able to get to them. Maybe we'll just have you guys back at another time and, and we'll do this again. But there is there was one that came up a number of times in the emails. This was a, this is one of those times when I solicited uh, listener questions and most of them came via email and not nice, you know, yeah. like posting on Twitter or Blue Sky. But the, the one that was probably the most common is uh, what is in female ejaculate? Did we talk about this last time, Ashley? I can't remember, but it came up again. Yeah, I'm not sure if we talked about it last time. I feel like we talked about like the female G-spot last time, but maybe mm. I'm remembering wrong. I don't know. But um, okay. I mean, the broad different, like the broad thing that people identify as female ejaculate is fluid being emitted during orgasm right? Fluid being emitted from during orgasm uh, from the urethra, right? So that can be a few different things. Um, it can be climacteria, which Justin mentioned earlier. So it can be loss of urine during orgasm. That happens in men after prostate cancer surgery because you've removed one of their sphincters, essentially. Um, but it is easier to happen um, in the absence of surgery in, you know, people with female bodies, um, um, because their urethra is shorter, right? So it's just urethra is shorter. Um, you know, it can be a higher predisposition after, um, having vaginal childbirth, um, because, um, there's a higher rate of what we call stress urinary incontinence or loss of, of, um, urine during things that increase the pressure in the abdomen, um, so, so, I mean, you know, it can be climacteria, um, and then there can be what we consider like a true female ejaculate, which is, um, when, when fluids come out of those, uh, periurethral glands, right? So there are small glands that, that you can see, like, if you look on physical exam next to the urethra, there are like openings of little glands and those, uh, are the equivalent of, um, they, they release the equivalent of, of what the prostate makes, 
Um, and so actually like there are studies where they've cannulated those ducts and they've found that they secrete something that is high in PSA and that's prostate specific antigen. Um, so it is really the equivalent of like the male ejaculate. Obviously there's no sperm in it, um, but but so that That'd does occur. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's like a rudimentary teeny tiny prostate and that area makes not only pre-cum, right? Which is a type of thing that makes women wet, um, but also can make ejaculate. Um, so, so that's like the long answer. So generally I say to people, like if the volume is very high and it's very clear, like more likely to be some component of climacteria. Um, and if it's like stickier and lower volume, then more likely to be closer to that, um, you know, periurethral uh, fluid expression. So fascinating. All right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, <laughs> There are more questions, but uh, we'll leave it at that for now. And I'll just have to have you guys back on at some point in the future to discuss it further. I really appreciate your time. It was a blast having you both. Let's get the plugs in. Uh, Justin, listen, where can people find you and listen to you and maybe touch you? Where, where, can, they, where can that happen? In a haunted well, they house. Can... <laughs> in a haunted... Are you going to be in a haunted house? That's where house they can somewhere? touch him. Yeah. <laughs> no touching in the haunted house, actually, just to be oh, clear. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you... <laughs> I, I, I jumped and I accidentally touched one of the actors and I apologized immediately, but <laughs> no touching. I didn't want to get kicked out. But no, um, you, you get so I have a podcast called uh, Man Up, a Doctor's Guide to Men's Health. Both Ashley and Kava have both been on it so uh we can you can find that on youtube itunes spotify amazon so give it a listen uh really appreciate uh anyone uh giving that a listen you can find me on twitter instagram uh on tiktok my name but i don't really tiktok i'm very intimidated by it mm -hmm. uh, house of pod i saw just made a tiktok which i'm now following I'm fully, um ashley is also gone. on it i've just given up all semblance of respectability i'm just <laughs> fucking selling out left and right first commercials and now tiktok i am time, man. truly lost and broken you put too much time in this to to not get some reimbursement that's just the way it is you're good at it and you you deserve yeah. something in return that's the bottom line but you can find me at, at justin dubin md is where you can find me on those things. And I'm in South Florida, Memorial Healthcare Systems. If you are in South Florida and you need to talk or you need to see me or you need a referral or any questions, just find me down here. Right on. And it's a great show. I do listen to it myself. Ashley, what about yourself? What can we plug uh, Yeah, I mean, you can find me. I don't have a ton to plug right now. You can find me on social media, mostly at Ashley G Winter. So A-S-H-L-E-Y and then G like grape and then winter like the season. Um, that's cause I started most of my socials a really long time ago before I was a doctor. <laughs> and then I just felt like I should be consistent with the handle. Um, and, and yeah, I, I used to have a podcast that I did a hundred episodes of and then quit. Years it was ago. very funny. It was a very funny podcast. It was very good. And it has been, we haven't done any, yeah, I don't even know if you can find it anymore. So don't look for it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> And yeah, and that's, um, and, uh, you know, if you're in the, the, the greater LA area and you want to come see me, um, you know, just, just follow my socials and you'll get all that info. Right on. Also watch Curb for her husband. Yeah. When it comes I'll out. let you all know when the, the thing will air. I mean, I think due to various <laughs> shutdowns in Hollywood, like, I don't even know when it's going to air. 
So, I say viewing party. I think we should have a viewing party. Yes, I agree. Amen. Or at least like live tweeting or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much. Thank you to Nadine for help with production. If you haven't already, rate and review us at iTunes. I really love it when I come across a uh, review from you guys. And the emails are open again. And I am looking at them at hopquestions at gmail.com. That's hopquestions at gmail.com. Thank you both so much. This was great. Really appreciate it. This was so, so fun. much fun. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.